Welcome to Factum Agri, dedicated to New Zealand's primary industry. Each week, I talk with farmers and growers, industry, the science community, and policymakers to hear their news and views on matters relevant to both our rural and our urban communities. This week on Factum Agri, farmer David Acklin joins me for a yarn. I'm keen to hear his thoughts on some key areas impacting farmers. He joins me now. Hello, David. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, yeah, morning, guys. School holidays coming to a close. How's that been on farm for you guys? That's good. Like school holidays on farm are great fun. Uh, our kids are all away at boarding school, so it's, it's it's quite fun having them. And yeah, when you think about it, farming wise, you're, you're very fortunate if you're both working. It's not many environments where the kids uh, can spend their time in the working environment with you. So yeah, yep. it's one one positive of uh, of of farming, isn't it? And that's uh, yeah, hundred percent. Hey, get them caught on it. Yeah, that's it. Into it. That's it. Yeah. So um, tell me a bit about your farming business, where you are located, and what you farm. Uh, so we're located in the McHenry Foothills, uh, 40 minutes west of Ashburton. Uh, we farm up against the southern slopes of Mount Summers, uh, yep. with 3,800 hectares, a sheep, beef, and dairy farming operation, mm. um, running about 9,000 breeding ewes. Uh, 150 beef cows and milking 900 dairy cows and rearing probably 80 85 percent of the calves and yep. carrying those animals through on a sheep and beef dry stock unit yeah good one and yeah, on the sheep and beef side do you finish all your own progeny uh combinations uh yep. we we run a store stock and finishing operation depending yep. on seasons and yeah we like just this this spring already we've dumped or the yearling, uh, yearling cattle that we'd carried out through, like bulls uh, that we'd carried through yep. from the dairy farming operation. Uh, yeah, okay. We've dumped those already due to the climatic conditions. Many are already talking about or using the word drought. Is that something that's on your mind at the moment? We came out of a significant La Nina period for us with uh, the, the flooding and, and a period of rainfall over a three, four-year period where our rainfall was probably a, a, always a quarter to a third above uh, normal, um, so we've been very, very wet. Yeah, and we had a, that change back in the autumn, and our winter and and spring periods being, we've experienced rainfall totals of sort of two thirds to a half of our normal, mm. uh, right through June, July, August, um, with a couple of significant rainfall events that have kept the ground topped up. But yeah, so it has been sort of front of mind. Yeah, but not you just always think about it it's probably a mindset change from what we've experienced which has been pretty reliable rainfall and you touched on reasonable rain i remember at the end of what was it may 2021 the ecan rain gauge at mount summers recorded its largest 48 hour rainfall ever at 526 millimeters quite significant at the time it sure was a significant event with severe damage across the region how has the cleanup been on your farm and indeed others around the region? And I, I would imagine for many, it's probably still ongoing in terms of rebuilding infrastructure. Well, sort of, it's not really like the North Island event because we're flatland, well, predominantly flat. Uh, most of the damage was confined to sort of a two to three K area off off the main rivers. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in North Canary, it was the Stell and here it was the um, the smaller Foothills rivers. Mm. So we're on the uh, well, south branch of the Ashburton mm. uh, and the tributaries that run down off Mount Summers. So they gave us a fair old tong up. We lost yep. yeah, significant areas of 
floodgates and the, the fencing that was alongside those those creeks, and we lost a hundred hectares, roughly under yep. the Ashburton River. Yeah, um, it took just that area that was inundated by the Ashburton that resulted in us. We had to change stock policy, reduce stock that winter mm. straight away, mm. um, and then it took six months to get we've and we've probably only got 80 percent of that land back into production right and that was complete refencing like there was nothing left it was all yep. under gravel uh we had 12 hectares of uh area that was uh under up to a meter of gravel wow we had to we moved and and we had areas other areas in that that had been eroded down a meter um so yeah, no, it was a significant event for us, but nothing. I don't think. Well, just over the periods post that any rainfall event, it just is similar to the you know what's happening in the North Island now. The, yep. the gravels and the, all the rivers had been given a good shake up. So any any rainfall event post then, uh, we've had always had to move machines back through to tidy up crossings, sort out floodgates again. Mm. Um, the odd stock water system still gets blown out. Mm. Uh, we fixed the last stock water system. Just uh, a month ago, after the last rainfall event, as it had come up out of the bottom of the creek and been ruptured, so mm. yeah, it's been it's a, a bit of a journey. In terms of the process and machinery required, manpower, trying to get that back to productive farmland again. I mean, what kind of process was that? Yeah, so we were fortunate that um, the government came in with some funding mm. that we were able to access where gravel if you could prove that you'd had gravel inundation from the river yeah um you could get um co-funding mm. so you had to front up with 50 percent yeah but it took um uh three diggers and two uh one one bulldozer and uh two moxie uh 30 ton moxie dump trucks you know those six wheel things um it took then uh probably six weeks yeah okay I don't know the maths on those. Most of yeah. those machines cost a twelve hundred dollars a day. Yes, to hire. It's, so it was a significant, significant, uh, significant cost even before you know. And one area hasn't even got the fencing, but it's got a, a you know boundary fence. But that's a twenty nine hectare paddock, flat paddock yeah. at the moment. And are there any neighbours or other farmers in the area that have still or that haven't managed to to get farmland back into production from that event? Yeah, look, we're, and it, yeah, we've got neighbours, uh, both and ourselves, that still have areas that are vulnerable to the river, just yep. due to the fact that you know the, the the flood works that were built in the 1950s post-war have been completely wiped out, mm. uh, and it's taken and due to the significant damage down country to that flood protection work that defended places like Ashburton and those mm. uh, main road bridges. Um, those areas took priority. Mm. So we they are now working their way up. Yep. And and I've got machines coming up the river this week, actually, this coming week okay. to carry out some flood protection. Yep. They they did we had, you know, the river, the whole river was coming through our area. And mm. so they did they did fix that. Um but they didn't do there hasn't been the maintenance on the on the tree, you know, managing the Willows making sure the channel's large enough to take these events. Yep. So they are now starting to do that work, which should have been done over the last 10 to 15 years, but 
that's just the way it is. So hopefully we'll see some better management of these graded river environments. Yeah, so that's the local council that are trying to carry out this mitigation work? Yeah, so that's the Canary Regional Council. So yep. it is a one of those bureaucratic um, monoliths that exist. It's a, sh- you know, it's a shame that it often takes a significant event like this to spur these organisations into action, isn't it? Well, yes and no, because prior to this event, there's been significant conversation, you know, nationally and, and at a regional level around braided rivers and how these uh, environments should be managed. So mm. there's the, the, you know, there's there's academics and, and organisations that would like to see them, what they, what they call freed. Uh, that's, that's, and I don't necessarily understand what they mean, like, well, what they mean by freed and what I see as freed are probably quite different mm. um, things. For me, freed is that you'd have to remove everything that has been put in place. Mm. So that's the stock banks or any any willows that are going to distort the braiding of that river. Mm. I think freed from their perspective possibly is that you just don't carry out any more maintenance and let the river do what it will. Um, mm. Mm. The issue is you, you've got, since we've interfered with these natural environments you've, you've got to manage them mm. now to enable them to behave in a way that is near to nature mm. um, it's two quite different things we touched on or well, you touched on the winter season you've had above average rainfall and you've got one eye on a potential dry summer how are stock conditions coming out of the winter you happy with how the stock are all looking yeah yeah so our, our winter was really good we we had a couple of rainfall events but all in all um Dry, dry wintering conditions. So for us, yep. it was um, a bit cold. What we'd classify as a normal cold for us, um, good frosts and utilization of feed. So mm. no, it was it was a, a good winter stock condition. I used were probably a little bit average, um, mm. but that was probably more a result of summer management rather than winter management. Right. And the dairy operation, the cows wintered very well, and this was the first winter where we'd wintered the majority of them on. On saved pasture, mm. uh, so that was an experiment. We went to wintering. We used to winter all our animals on winter winter crops, uh, brassicas, mm. and with the winter grazing rules and some thought processes around trying to improve uh, reproduction mm. and animal health within the dairy herd. We moved five hundred of those animals onto a grass wintering system, which worked this winter due to the conditions. Mm. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if it, how, how what the damage would have been like um, under a a wetter wetter environment. But yeah, it definitely worked this year for those animals. Mm, that's good. Are you are you panicking about the dairy payout? Um, not quite. No, the last three GDTs have been relatively comforting in that they mm. are now travelling upwards mm. rather than downwards. Mm. Um, oh, look, it's a definitely a you revisit the budget um and we revisited it multiple times over the last six months whilst we're yep. setting it um the dairy payouts one thing the lamb lamb one is probably more of a concern yep. to me right at the moment mm. uh and where that kicks off and how that kicks off and and just the confidence due to us we have a lamb sale before christmas yeah and all lamb sales are confidence things mm. and it's mm. probably we're trying to set ourselves up so we're not um, we have the ability to absorb a few more lambs into our system. Yep. Um, so we can carry them. So we're not 
probably as vulnerable yeah uh, at that point mm. but mm. yeah that's probably yeah the, the the sheep thing is probably more of a, a concern to yeah. me right at the moment than the the dairy one we sort of i don't think it's going to go any lower yeah um touch wood yeah yeah the no, lamb one's so- definitely um it's definitely concerned that most farmers that i've spoken to uh are worried about at the moment yeah for sure yeah so we've got a bad number written into the budget or relatively bad number written into the budget for, for lambs yeah um and the original one number we thought was bad enough but we we did have to revise that mm. we're probably a little bit optimistic mm. um but then again it do- won't take too much for shifting confidence mm. um, and i think it'll be all right that's good. It won't be, you know, it's not. It's not going to be brilliant, right? We'll survive. And, yeah. Well, well, that's good. And I guess you know, dovetailing into that is, of course, it's a big year politically in this country, and the left and right have different ideas on farming policies. That's pretty clear. Do you think a change in direction is needed for farmers in terms of current policy settings? Um, well, the direction of travel is probably correct. It's just how we're going about it mm. is probably hasn't worked. So if you look at what's been demanded through uh, the banking and uh, you know uh, the companies that we, we sell our produce to, Fonterra's and the, the meat companies, mm. they are all requiring us to understand our emissions profiles mm. and, and what they are. Mm. Um, so the scope three emission conversation. Mm. So that that is probably, it's just the way that and you have to go back, you know, six years to think about the Hiwok Ekanaya journey of, in, mm. in the emissions pricing journey um, to see the environment that we were in at that point in time. You had a you know a dominant Labour Party with um, in that second term with over fifty percent of the vote, so pretty much they could do what they will. Mm. Um, and I think the, the the play that was made by the agricultural industry was the correct one at that point in time. Mm. Um, the outcome, the Hiwaki Kanoa side of things, where it got to just did show that how difficult it was to balance the different demands and the complexity of the multiple farming systems that exist in New Zealand. So you've mm. got one that base, is based on intensity, which is the dairy industry, mm. and one that's extensive, which is the sheep and beef industry. Mm. And they have two completely different tensions within and stories within um, the product that is produced so one has a you know the sheep and beef one has it's the story of you know biodiversity on it mm. and good and you know sequestration story and the dairy one has a, a, a good story when you get down to it mm. of kilograms of energy to uh greenhouse gas mm. um to try and price behavior change in these environments that i don't think does work mm. um where's if we have an understanding and a, a stress from the buyer, that tends to work. You mm. just have to look at the, you know, we're, we're lead with pride with Sinlay. Um, and way back when Waitrose first came into New Zealand in the 90s, we were in that program as well, um, when Ansco had that program going. So mm. these market tensions have always probably played a more important role than government trying to interfere there is a need. I think where it is at now, and the, tr- the pre- we, we we know beef and lamb and federated farmers and dairy and Z are trying to get um, the government just to 
focus on the calculator side of things and each farming operation to understand that number so that they can, we all have the same number mm. rather than multiple platforms having different numbers. I think that's more confusing. So I think the central number would be awesome, would yeah. be good, to then allow us to report that one central number to our bank or to the meat company or dairy company or store stock operator so that we all operate within the same number. Um, and that will allow it to drive change mm. without the need for a price. Um, yeah. I think you can see that already. Mm. And I think we need clear, workable, bipartisan policies that essentially intergenerational and last the test of time, which would actually provide farmers and the country certainty. Do you think that's achievable? Yeah, but you've got to all be on the same page at the start. And I think we're... We, what we've seen is, if you think about the old pendulum, um, and the water one is probably the more problematic within New Zealand than the emissions one. I think the emissions one is probably easier to solve mm. uh, if, if it's allowed to just be set to where it is, um, where the industry is trying to push it, which is just to know your number and to mm. stay in that, I think, would and, and a change in, in understanding of the metrics to a warming effect rather than a gross effect that's important as well um yeah the pendulum swung right through and if you look at the NPS fresh water that is pretty critical document in that it changed how the weight you know it weighted or put a hierarchy in place mm. and that that is problematic mm. and that it becomes very difficult then to um try and do anything it you know really does especially in Canterbury there, it's, it's sort of stalled everything mm. with regards to consenting because everything you do does have an effect on the environment. Mm. Mm. And if you don't get that conversation right, um, it's really easy to say, oh, we want to have a natural environment or a perfect environment. But what is that? Mm. And it's very difficult to actually have that when you have, uh, you know, I don't know what's the population using, 5 million people. Uh, and, and 85, 90% of them live in, heavily urbanised environment. Mm. Um, they just want the outside rural area to be perfect, but that's quite different to um, what we we see as operational. Um, you know, and you can't have... They, we always have an effect on the environment we operate in. That's always been the case and always be the case. Every, every time you do something, has you know, equal and opposite, mm. you know, you've got to compromise. And, and the way it sits now, it's very difficult to compromise. Mm. So I think if there can be a change within that, even just a change in that would allow it to be a little bit more enduring. Mm. Um, yeah, just where it sits right now, how it was written and, and the, you know, there was a couple of changes, as everyone knows, with regards to basically the balance of power. Um that has made it more difficult to probably make it generation mm, at mm. the moment. I think mm. if there's some minor minor changes, um, it'll make it a little bit more easy, easily mm. um, achievable to be generational. My, my fear probably is that there'll be wholesale changes again and the pendulum will start swinging rapidly back through to the other side and then we'll, we'll go like that and then next time there's a change in government and 
whatever time period that is, will violently swing back through the other way. Mm. Um, that's probably a big problem. I think mm. at the moment the travel is is right. It's just that implementation has been very poorly done and the farming community hasn't been taken on the journey by by central government. That's the problem with it when you have a a, a, a large majority government. There was wasn't the tension within parliament um to enable good development of of policy and and that sort of thing. So yeah. Mm. Yeah, speaking of change, potential change, your family have been on the land for a long time, many, many generations. We are now seeing more corporate farming in this country. Do you have concerns at all that the family farm in general may be under threat? Uh, well, if you look right through the history of farming in New Zealand, you know there was large, well, they were supposed to call estates when New Zealand was first settled, and then you had the settlement farms post-war. Um, there was multitudes of those, and then they they amalgamated uh, after the First World War. You know there was some that were too, you know, not viable, and then after the Second World War, the similar sort of journey mm. happened. There's always been this this tension and this change. Uh, there's really good examples of corporate farming in Canterbury and, and probably up the east coast, and you know these large stations that are owned by um, either overseas owners or absentee owners that are New Zealanders, which have really good ethoses and and management and and community. Part of the community, and they have there's one in Canterbury here that you know that has the cadet school on it, and it, it you know it has the ethos of um, what I'd consider a really really good fa- family farm. Mm. Um, so it is incredibly difficult to, I think, now with when you pass something on to the next generation, you know, there's equality um, to two siblings. I think mm-hmm. that makes it really, really difficult. I think in the past that hasn't existed, and that's why we've been able to have generational farms. There's mm-hmm. been an inherent unfairness, so that's made it pretty problematic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so, that, it, so is it the question of the overseas investment being the problem, or the change and um, the change in what is fair mm-hmm. is the problem? Mm-hmm. Um, and families are always problematic. You, you, um, when it comes to you know changing, you see it. You know it's in the media, and I'm sure you know of families that um, where relationships are broken down mm. due to the succession process. Mm. Uh, it's incredibly incredibly difficult to navigate. Mm. So I don't think necessarily corporate farming is a bad thing. Mm. Um, there's there's bad family farming operations in this yeah. as well. So mm. um, I think when you look at the stress right at the moment, forestry, um, or not really forestry, carbon investment, that's probably a bigger a bigger threat. Mm. And that is a corporate absentee investment um, companies that you know, probably have a greater threat to New Zealand farming than, say, overseas investment in farming for farming. Mm. I think that's probably how I see. I see, yeah, I see overseas investment in farming for farming where they have large-scale operations where they can spend good money uh, to pay good wages and farming is a profession. 
and then there is a clear journey for people within the within farming operations and mm. you know management and and that side of things. You look at the some of those big stations in Australia, they you know those big operations over there. It's similar sort of thing. There's good and bad. David, I've I've really enjoyed chatting with you today, and I really appreciate your time. That's right. No pleasure. Well, that's all from me this week. Thank you to our farmers for providing the food we eat and the significant value you bring to the New Zealand economy. Thank you for listening and catch you next time.